I did not want to be seen with that book. The minute I opened that book, I was like, mm. <laughs> I was like, maybe I should put that down. Uh-huh. Like, because being perceived is terrifying. But being perceived is what will lead us to our blessings. Mm. Being perceived is what will lead us to opportunity that is greater than our imagination. Welcome to the After You Fail podcast, where we know three things. Failure is inevitable. Failure does not make you a bad or weak person. And being intentional about how you respond to failure will change your life. I'm your host, Mikkel C. Clark. And my question to you is, what happens after you fail? The answer is up to you. How do you stay grounded in who you are and what you believe in while living in a world that is constantly pushing you to fit into a box that was never actually made for you? What do you do when you realize that you've lost sight of what matters? Today's episode may help you to answer these questions for yourself. Our guest, Ahime Ora, is a Nigerian wordsmith and priestess of the Ifa and Orisha tradition. Using mediums such as writing, she creates content to heal, to elevate, and to inspire. She's the author of Ancestors Said, and through her creations, she makes space for joy and well-being in her communities. She makes spirituality more accessible, accommodating, and safe. Today, I'm talking with Ahime about how her spiritual practice and perspective grounds her when she loses sight of herself, her boundaries, or her mission. Ahime, what's going on? Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. (laughs) I was um, excited to have you. I was hyped when you said yes, and so I'm just happy to have this conversation. How how are you feeling? How's your spirit today? Uh, I'm feeling a lot of different things. Mm. I'm feeling, I guess the, the main thing I'm feeling is hope. You know, hope for the future. I'm feeling curious and I'm feeling grounded in like a new beginning Mm. in a way, you know? I love that. Being able to hold on to hope in this season feels Mm. like a victory in and of itself. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. What is it? What does it look like for you to to maintain that, to feel that during this season? So... You know, I practice Ifa and Arisha, and there is a proverb within my practice that says, the suffering of a priest does not last forever. And that's something that I always remember because it really does not. What really helps me hold on to hope is looking back at my past, back at how I always felt like this was it for me, back at when I felt like maybe... I wouldn't be able to overcome this challenge. I've always been able to have this new beginning to restart. And I I think right now I'm just, I want to create a more solid foundation and stability where I'm always remembering that, where I don't feel like it's it for me anytime, yeah. you know? I love that. And I'm glad you dove into spirituality. You know, I've mm. told you this off camera, I'll tell you on camera, I've been a fan of your perspective and just how grounded you are and what matters and what is the most important to you for quite some time. And um, 
one thing I didn't know until recently is that we are both autistic. Mm. Um, the interesting thing is we are autistic while living in New York City, Oof. which is <laughs> a crazy combination awesome. of things to experience. And so I am curious how you stay grounded in that, how you take care of yourself, how you make space for what you need while being neurodivergent and living in New York City. Boy, I moved to Queens. I said I got to go get some nature. <laughs> so I moved to Queens and I, and I liked Queens because I have more of a forest in my area. I have a park close by and I, I've been making trips to the, to the park very often lately. And I've been talking a lot to the trees and to the earth. And that's kind of how I've been able, especially for me, to ground myself in times of anxiety. Um, it's so easy for me being autistic to kind of be overstimulated and overwhelmed, especially with like the chaos in the environment. Not only like am I feeling like, oh gosh, I'm anxious within me, but then you got cars buzzing, all these people talking, music playing, and it just makes me almost like shake in mm -hmm. a way. So my trips to the forest have been a way for me to decompress, but also be connected with the spirits that live within the trees and they have wisdom. They have great wisdom, you know, like the whole fungal network underneath trees that that's how like they kind of like share nutrients, right, with one another. And I think about that and I think, okay, if trees can do that for each other, they can do so much for me, you know? They can really create healing mm -hmm. and removal of blockages or anything that I'm kind of holding on to. So it's been almost a reciprocity process that I'm having with trees. It's not just for me to talk to them and then like take away all this anxiety, but also paying attention to cleaning up around the trees as well and having this like, I guess, like transaction relationship happening between us. I love that. I love that. And I'd be curious to hear also how your neurodivergence shapes your writing, your creative expression, um, if you feel like the way that your brain operates allows you to express yourself in a different way. I feel it allows me to go deeper into the depths of myself that I kind of scare or fear other people. Um, I'm not ashamed of being weird or yeah. odd. And I think that's what makes my writing to me to be a safe place for me to be as weird as I want to be. Mm -hmm. So I'm always playing around with words, breaking words down, trying to figure out new ways to express myself, new analogies, creating new analogies. I'm really interested in the philosophy of writing mm -hmm. and interested in like how you as writers, you kind of both know that it's spiritual to write and I, I'm, I strongly believe our ability to write is not just because we're talented writers, but it's, but it's because we're, it's a gift from the universe. We're vessels for spirit. My ability to write is not just because I'm able to write, it's because I'm meant to use it for something. And I'm meant to respect that power and that ability. So I, I surrender to writing and I don't hold back. I love that. And um, I love how you talk about accepting your weirdness, mm -hmm. you know, making space for that. And, um, you know, again, being in a city where things are constantly moving, there's almost this requirement that you fit into a box, that you don't get in anybody else's way, 
You don't step outside of the box too often. Um, you don't interfere with all these different things that have to be true for New York City to function. And um, I wonder how you give yourself grace and allow yourself to, to be weird and to be different and um, to be outside of that box when there's so much incentive given to staying inside of that box. Mm, I remember Destiny a lot um, within IFA. IFA is really big on Destiny. And we actually believe that we co-create Destiny, mm. we go through like three stages of Destiny selection when we're in heaven, co-creating um, all aspects of ourself on earth with these divinities. And we choose certain characteristic traits and quirks that are unique to us because it benefits us on earth. So I allow myself to expand and be weird because I literally chose to be me, did not chose to be you, even though I like you, <laughs> even though I think you're really cool. I did not chose to, the, to be the other person. I chose to be as full as I can be. And I have to owe it to myself and that in the distinct process that I made in heaven to be me as I am. I love that. I love that. And so you are a Shango initiate. You are Ifa and Arisha Priestess. Shout out Nigeria. Period. Period. And an educator of African spirituality. Your practice is rooted in ancestral veneration, um, which in short is based on honoring and respecting the ancestors, deceased loved ones and their spirits. And so you, you kind of operate with this understanding that you are the living embodiment of your ancestors. That is really, really powerful. I'm curious to hear, you know, with this knowledge, this understanding, um, how you talk to yourself when you realize that you might be out of alignment. Maybe you made a mistake. Um, and in knowing that the way that you operate doesn't just affect you, it affects your lineage. Um, how do you speak to yourself when you, when you do make mistakes with that understanding? Oof. It's self-forgiveness. It's self-forgiveness and not allowing shame to swallow up my spirit because shame will try. And shame has tried a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> shame has tried and kind of seceded a little bit, mm -hmm. you know? And what has helped me is holding on to the Orishas that I'm initiated into, like Shango. And Shango, he has taught me so much about grace for myself. Shango is the Orisha of anger, right? And Orisha who's extraordinarily passionate and emotional. And there are many stories within Ifa about how Shango's rage got the best of him and how it would destroy him and everybody else that he loved and how he regretted that, how he guilted himself over it, how he disappeared because of it. That's why there's a, a praise word, a praise phrase that we call to Shango, the king did not hang, obakoso, lukoso. And because they rumored, because he felt so much guilt and remorse when he disappeared that he hung himself, right? Mm. And that's why Shango tells me it doesn't have to go that deep. It doesn't have to go that far. You don't have to destroy yourself because you did wrong. Shame and accountability cannot coexist in the same body. You have to choose one. And why not choose the one that gives you more life and doesn't take it away? How do you remember that when shame is almost threatening to overwhelm or envelop you? Because it's it's one thing to know that and to understand that. But, you know, in the moment, shame can kind of drown out a lot of our logic, um, 
a lot of our reasoning. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how you hold on to that understanding when you really feel like mm. it's, it's hard to, to hear yourself in those moments. I remember my humanness. Mm. And I remember why we come on earth. We don't just come on earth just to, for funsies. Even though it's kind of fun sometimes, mm -hmm. right? We actually come on earth to participate in the marketplace. With an Ifa, we consider earth to be the market. And we enjoy this fantastic interaction of buying and selling, buying characteristic traits, selling experiences, and vice versa. I literally came on earth to fail. Mm. <laughs> to fail and to learn from that. Mm. I literally came on earth to do wrong so I can do better next mm. time. Because this earth is for me to grow and expand my soul. If I was already aware of all of my faults, my cracks within my spirit, I wouldn't be on earth in the first place. Mm. So I remember that and I hold on to that. And so it could be said that because we come to earth to fail, um, our purpose here is to, to learn, to become more wise, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us as well. Mm -hmm. I love that. And as you say, our existence is not by coincidence, but by calculated orchestration. Calculated orchestration. Mm -hmm. To be here, even like the, the family you chose. Yeah. We all choose it with intention. And I even wonder, like, how different would our life be if we remember how intentional we chose mm. everything around us that we chose with intention? Like, oof. Like, I remember in Ifa, you know, we consider our higher self, it's called Ori, which is head, right? And within our Ori, our higher self, it's the Ashe, the power of the creator lives within us. Mm. The creator literally breathed himself themselves, herself, whatever, into us. Mm -hmm. And we carry a piece of that on earth. Literally, the creator, Lodomari, literally made a piece of us on earth. So in a way, to become our own God on earth. And I think about how our Ori does not allow... It's so incredibly powerful. I, yeah, I get a lot of people within the Arisha practice, they're always, you know... I guess for a beginner, the first question is, which Arisha guards my head? Or, you know, who's the most powerful Arisha? But the most powerful Arisha is actually yourself. You're the most powerful divinity. You're the most one with the, the ability to make things happen. And the creator made it that way. So you remember your power and you remember your destiny. We, in Ifa, it's considered that the Ori, like if you're not able to hold on to yourself, if you don't remember yourself, if you don't do right by yourself, everything else falls apart. Everything else falls short. It's even said that we can even turn away our good. And how many times have we sabotaged things? Mm -hmm. And I think, especially now with divinities and spirituality, like it's all good. And those are things that are really well, but the first priority should be getting right with yourself first for everything else to start to make sense. I want to talk more about getting right with yourself. And, um, you know, I, I'm curious about any moments where you had to really hone in on that, mm. where you weren't right with yourself, you were out of alignment, something, a distraction, um, something of this world pulled you out of yourself. And I'd love to hear about how you, you know, took note of that and brought yourself back to center. Mm. 
I think the experiences that kind of pull me most out of myself is always like my love experiences. Mm -hmm. Love can be challenging, y'all. Woo! To love love and be be loved. (laughs) Love and be loved. And I think that's the, the space where I grow the most where I'm able to really look at my character flaws because it really comes out when you're loving someone mm-hmm. or when you want to be loved by someone. And everything about what you experience in your childhood, how you were raised, all of those things are come into account in love. And it's also a way for you to actualize true healing because you're always, no matter how hard you try, you're always going to be in connection with somebody. So perfecting how you relate with others is key for your own mental well-being and for your own safety as well. So I'm learning a lot about, I'm learning a lot about the, the falseness and the toxicity that comes with being an assumptious person, uh, running into assumptions not asking for clarity, even though you expect clarity, Um, expecting mind reading actions and love. I'm running from also not believing that I'm worthy of love. Even if someone says they love me, learning to believe that and learning not to question it. So I'm learning a lot about surrendering to the safety of love and devoting myself to the act of loving and being loved. So it's been a, it's been a whole internal experience. For sure, <laughs> yeah. And romantic love, it brings so much more vulnerability out of you than so many different other types of relationships. And um, I, one of the quotes that really stuck with me, because I call you, you're a scroll stopper. You are the person who, when I see your name on social media, I'm like, I got to stop. I got to hear this and digest whatever this might be. And um, one thing you wrote a while back, um, you said, my first mistake was searching for God in everyone else but myself. Aren't I also divine? Mm. Talk to me about how you got to that point, how you came back to seeing your own divinity Mm. and... um, what led you astray in the first place? It was love yeah. that led me astray, but it was also love that found me mm. at the same time. I think it is so easy to feel, especially for women and those who identify as femme identifying folk, it's so easy for us to put our self, uh, sense of self into love, not even into loving ourselves, but in having someone love us to the point that we make them our God, to the point that we put them so high on the pedestal that we too get crushed by the inevitable Mm -hmm. turnaround, right? And I had to learn on how this person may be good and kind and sweet, but they're not perfect. And they're not someone that I need to, in a way, pull and pull all of my spirit into, if that makes sense. It's almost as if like I came into a realization that this sense of um, hollowness that you're feeling in your heart, especially like I remember in a previous breakup when I was greeting the creator every morning and I was feeling the sunshine in my heart every morning and I was feeling the fullness in my heart. And I was like, wait a minute. So this is what I was looking for. I wasn't really looking for the approval and the validation in someone in romance. I was looking for God. Mm. 
I was looking to feel the love of the divinities. I was looking to feel the love of my ancestors. And it's so hard sometimes to feel that love, especially in a society where we're so disconnected from spirit. It's so hard to feel like the person that made us, the creator, is even looking out for us, is mm. even real. Man. And so when you have these realizations, when you... When you realize these things, I wonder what it looks like for you to to take time for self to to heal and eventually to come back and to give romantic love a try again. How does how does that happen um, after all of the the reckoning and realization that you have to go through to get back there? I give a lot of myself time with space, like time and just not entertaining relationship um, or romantic relationships. But I would say like the biggest thing that I do to bring me back is putting myself into art. Art has healed me a lot. Art has transformed all of my being. Um, even in the previous breakup, the same breakup when I found out that, oh, I was looking for God. It was when I found my love for clay making my love for metal sculpting, my love for creations with my hands. And I'm like, oh, so this aspect of myself, I can, it can also be found here. And I, I'm giving a lot of reference to love um, and love as an artistic form. And I'm seeing the connections between art as love as well. So it's just been an interesting experience for me. Yeah, I really do think that art is... Art's a spiritual thing. Oh, it's most um, definitely a spiritual it thing. Is, it is so much more than stress relief and, mm. you know, a way to step away from work. It is truly a spiritual thing. And, um, you know, when you are creating art, when you are healing, when you are taking time for self, um, I speak for me. There are a lot of moments when I'm not kind to myself mm. when I'm healing. There are moments when... I'm, I'm going back through what happened and I'm seeing maybe where I fell short or where I could have taken better care of myself. And I start to say to myself, well, you should have figured this out. You should have known these things. Um, you should have taken this path. And it, it almost leads me down this path of self-deprecation where I'm, I'm beating myself up instead of taking the lesson. And um, I'm curious if you, if you go through that and if so, how you navigate that? It really, I have to hold a sense of patience for myself, like when I'm in those moments. And it's like kind of just what I spoke earlier about remembering the humanness of me and remembering my own humanity. It is so easy for me to steal my own humanity away when I do wrong, when I go through problems, or even when I'm not making progress with the healing that I thought I would be. And I have to remember that there is grace and slowness. And also I think that slowness is how we're able to make the most growth anyway. It's, it's yeah, we can heal quickly and we can grow, go out of, you know, grow out of trauma and grow out of all these problems quickly, but things that come quick can also leave quickly as well. 
And I want my healing to be substantial. Like what I spoke earlier when we just started about foundation and stability. I want to be rooted into the earth. And I want my healing not to last for me, but to last for generations to come. So giving myself grace into the slowness and leaning into patience has been really helpful. Mm, I love that. And, um, you know, when I think about art as a byproduct of feeling, that's, that's some pretty good silver lining, you know? Like, did, were you healing when you wrote Ancestor Said? I was going through a heartbreak. Okay. Yeah. Yes, while I wrote yeah. Ancestor Said. It's so interesting and beautiful that, you know, we were just talking about this book is here forever. This book never goes away, and this book can serve so many people. And because you were intentional as you healed, because you were courageous and expressive and vulnerable as you healed, people have this book forever. And people who are also navigating, recovering from failure and different forms of trauma and different things, like they'll have this book forever to be able to reference, which I think is beautiful. And um, I want to read... A favorite passage of mine, actually, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, Ancestors said is 365 introspections, um, thoughts to self, for self, to facilitate emotional healing. And um, I'm going to read January 10th. You got to resurrect the deep pain within you and give it a place to live that's not within your body. Let it live in art. Let it live in writing. Let it live in music. Let it be devoured by building brighter connections. Your body is not a coffin for pain to be buried in. Put it somewhere else. Mm, Man. Man. I, I love this so much. And, you know, we've, we've talked about what it looks like to let your pain live and eventually be released through art. Um, I also love that you mentioned allowing connections and community to also be an outlet for you during healing. Um, There is so much weight given to individualism, um, you know, kind of holding things to self and protecting yourself almost to the point of isolating yourself. Um, But community really does matter. And um, being able to find the right people, being able to find the right community, the right village, and having that support around you, does so, so, so much for you when you're healing and recovering and bouncing back from whatever life might have thrown at you. Um, I'd love to hear about how community, how the right community, the aligned people in your community who do love you and show up for you have helped you to heal and to recover. Mm, I think it's my spiritual practice that has really brought me into community. So Ifa Narisha is a communal practice. You're not practicing by yourself. And the blessings for you also trickle down to the blessings of the, of the group, the blessings of the community, the blessings of the village. It is so integral mm. for everyone to pray for you. So even that moment of just experiencing everyone's prayer for you, like when I got initiated, all of these priests praying for me, they don't even know me. And they praying for me and they praying with their chest mm-hmm. to give me good prayers, uh-huh. not just, you know, hollow prayers. And it's like I see just the care of spirit and humanity and in human beings in that moment. And just a shift of just like what would happen if we just had that relationship with other people 
of even if I may not know you like that, I can still wish you well, wish you very well. I can speak intentional, you know, blessings into your life and I can hold you close and I can see and respect your humanity. Spirituality has shown me that it is so easy for you to almost feel, especially in the Western world, as if everyone is against you. You can't trust anyone and having to be isolated in order to heal, I believe in communal, community healing, communal healing, communal work, and spiritual practice to, to not only be a way for me to have personal freedom, but freedom for my entire community as well. I feel like if our spiritual practice cannot benefit our community, what are we doing it for? And who is it for? Mm-hmm. Like especially with just how weird society is getting, we must be thinking of community. We must be thinking of the group more than ever. You know, New York can harden you. Oh. New York can turn you into a less empathetic, less open version of yourself. Um, I love how you talk about not even having to know somebody very well to want to show up for them and pray for them and wish for their healing and just be open to them. Um, how do you how do you make space for that sort of openness? while also living in New York and having to protect yourself and possibly be hardened in certain ways? Um, So I always lean into spiritual protection. Mm. If I protect myself spiritually, the physical world can't really touch me. And I believe in that because this physical world and spiritual world are not operating in different places. Mm -hmm. They're operating simultaneously. We believe that as we are, as above, so below, but also throughout, right? Like, Right now, there may be spirits within us, around us, Mm -hmm. right now as we're talking and doing their own thing, living their own life. And if I'm able to armor myself up with my spiritual practice, armor myself up with my ancestors, then I can go outside and I can have more peace of mind. I mean, that's why I wear a lot of white. (laughs) That's why I wear a lot of white. Not just just because I like the color white. Even though I like it, it looks good on black skin, if you ask me. You feel me? Right? But... It has spiritual value. It reflects energies from you. And I think New York, not only can it harden you, it is extremely spiritually congested. Mm -hmm. You can feel it. You can feel it when you're in the subway. You can feel it when you're walking out. You just feel way down. You don't really know why. It's because of the energy. And not, not to mention all of these neighborhoods being built on, you know, old black neighborhoods. African burial ground. You know, talking about mm-hmm. just general things. It's, of course, the spiritual activity is here, but it's not just to weigh us down, even though it's, it can't feel that way. It can also, we can utilize that activity to manifest and to materialize all that we want in this life. So I would cleanse myself with spiritual waters. I would wear white. Um, I would also just be mindful of not doing things that taint my character because that is also a type of spiritual hygiene, not gossiping, right? Being mindful of of how how much of myself did I share, um, holding on to privacy. Those are kind of ways that I'm protecting myself spiritually and having better spiritual hygiene, but also having better mental well-being. You know, Ahime, we live in this world that it just feels like we are constantly in motion there's always something else to do. There's always another thing to take care of. Um, and your perspective, it just feels so grounded in intention. Um, and the kind of intention that requires silence and, 
you know, pausing. And so I'm, I'm curious about how you make space for the intentionality that you so clearly have um, in this world that is always pushing us to contort ourselves or to bend somewhere, to fit into some sort of box. Like, how do you, how do you make space? Oof. Uh, holding on to my mornings, mm-hmm. honestly. My mornings are for me. Mm-hmm. They're really for me and they're not really for the world. Yeah. And that distinction has been helping me a lot uh, with <sighs> recentering and revitalizing my spirit in a way. So mm-hmm. like I have, and it's not like a, like I don't have the most deep morning mm-hmm. routine. People be having doing 50 things in the morning. I'm like, Y'all do oh, no cold showers? No. <laughs> All I want to do is just see some peace and have some joy in my mornings. I like to start my mornings with some joy um, so I don't pick up my phone because that's not joy. There ain't no joy on that phone. That's a fact. There ain't no joy <laughs> on that phone. But there's joy in some music, though, mm-hmm. right? So I always like to start off my days with some jazz on like my jazz records. I love to play, love my vinyl so much. <laughs> so that's how I start to kind of bring in the ashe of the morning, the power of the morning, giving gratitude and thanks to my mother. My mother is always, she's always like, you got to give gratitude and thanks to the creator when you wake up. So she even says, I give thanks to God. I give thanks to Jesus. She loved herself from Jesus. I give thanks to my ancestors. She always, she's the one that teaches me everything that I know about spirituality and how to hold myself. So even just watching how my mom kind of moves in the mornings, now she take some mornings for herself that has really, really allowed me to be more tapped into spirit in a way. Mm. What role did she play in your religious discovery? Oh, um, everything. Education? Everything. I could talk about my mother for days. Yeah. Um, when we immigrated, my mother struggled a lot with homesickness. Mm. And... Every night, I can really even just imagine it now, she would sit me and my brothers on her bed, corner of her bed, and I remember just looking at her with wide eyes as my mother would just tell stories of her ancestors, of our family, of times in Nigeria. And she would literally call down spirit that way. She would literally call down her ancestors that way. And my mother is a very dramatic storyteller. She would stand up, she would move, she would change her voice. And she would, in that way, show me the power of being a storyteller, Mm. show me the power of the word, of the spoken word and the written word. My desire and my interest in writing is because of my mother, because of the way that she would move with the word and the way that you can heal that way and the way that you can venerate ancestors in that way with just your mouth. And I saw with the with storytelling, with the use of the spoken word, my mother would heal herself from homesickness and she would in a way, pass down Easter eggs for me that I would find as I grow more into my spiritual practice. Like almost everything that my mother, like I've talked about, about our ancestors, about spiritual practices, about everything has always come to fruition. And yeah, I could just talk, I can go on and on. I really yeah. respect my mama. So <laughs> gotta respect mom. Shout out to moms and shout out to her for Most definitely. you know you want to the power of word, the written word. Most definitely. My yeah. mother is not spiritually ignorant mm-hmm. as well. And she's also spiritually holistic. She always says that it doesn't matter 
who you pray to or what you believe, you just need to do it very well mm. so you can be protected. The mother says that life is full of wickedness and that your prayers is going to protect you, bless you, and save you. So you must do it very well. Mm. And that's how I take that with me into my practice. That's very persuasive. I can't, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't argue with that. Do you have any favorite passages from this book that you know, um, kind of really speak to you? Definitely. April 11th. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that real quick, and I'd love to hear a bit about why this one in particular speaks to you, if you don't mind. Yes. Okay. So April 11th reads, Others can try to emulate you, but the blessings arriving have your name on them. Others may try to replicate your process, but they will never quite have the same success. Never. Why? Because the universe is not a fool. Mm. Talk to me about folks who bite your style. Listen, <laughs> listen. I mean, it ain't even about biting. I think I wrote that passage for both sides. Mm. Those that experience the envy and those that feel slighted by the envy as well. Because especially, you know, I guess in the age of social media, you know, as writers, people would copy, paste the writing. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, wait, isn't that my tweet? Bar like, for bar, flow like, for flow. Even breaking it down. <laughs> like, damn. And you make you feel some type of way about it. Mm -hmm. Then I have to realize that they don't have my ashe, though. They don't have my power. They don't have literally the particular thing that the creator blessed me with to do on earth. They don't have that. Mm -hmm. So even if someone attempts to copy all of my steps, tries to research, how did a Himeora do all of this? It would never quite work because we have two different ashes. We have two different destinies, mm. which is also why someone who's experiencing folks being envious of them or jealous of them shouldn't really blow off because again they don't have your destiny they yeah. will never be able to take away anything that you have you don't have to worry so much about that mm -hmm. and i have literally learned not to worry so much about that learning to worry about myself and what i can control which is focusing on my purpose and making sure that i'm helping others reconnect back to their ancestors that's it you know yeah i love how you framed it it's really audacious for mm -hmm. somebody to think that they can take your destiny you know, what is meant for you um, by trying to copy your path. I love the way you frame that. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious. Um, I'd love to hear about what a Hime or a, the kid, the version of you living in Ibadan City, Nigeria, in a Christian household, if the kid version of you that was sitting, you know, by your mother's bedside, if she could see who you are today, how far you've come, the book that you've written and published, um, what would she say? Could she even imagine any of this? Oof. I think that question is going to be the question to make me cry, honestly. <laughs> I, oof. You know, the minute that I could hold a pencil in my left hand, my parents did not like me with my left hand. They're like, why aren't you? But no, I'm different, you know. Mm -hmm. The minute I could hold that pencil, I told my mother and my parents, I want to be an author. I didn't say a writer. I said, I want to be an author. I want to write books. And my, you know, my family are immigrants. And being immigrant, sometimes life is hard. Not even sometimes. A lot of the time, almost all the time, it's really hard. And my mother, she was worried about my future. She was like, how would you, how would you be able to support yourself? How would you make money if you're going to be an author? And for me as a kid, I listened to that information 
But I still was like, oh, well, I don't know. I'm going to still make it work. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love me some books, so I'm going to figure it out. And I figured it out. You know, I originally published Ancestor Said myself um, because no publisher was really interested in doing it. And and I was almost kind of slighted by it. Like, maybe I shouldn't really be an author. Maybe my family was right. Maybe I just shouldn't write books, do something more practical. And I took a chance. My ancestors were like, take a chance and publish it out yourself and see what you can do. And just to see that it being picked up by a publisher because everyone was really enjoying the book and kind of a testament of making sure that you believe in yourself first. My mother said something so profound to me. She said, I'm really glad you didn't listen to me. She says that children know what they want to do, but it's parents that stop them. And I'm just like, oh, that is so true. And how that too is destiny Mm. and how that too of just coming down on earth with a purpose. Mm. Let's watch our children very carefully and see what they're interested in. Doesn't mean that we need to spend $5,000 to invest in what's that because they could be X, Y, and Z, but maybe we should nurture their hobbies. Maybe we should nurture what they're curious in because it could, it's probably their purpose. It probably could lead them to finding so much things about themselves and mm-hmm. being more of an expansive, well-rounded person. So, yeah. I love that, of course, parents teach their children so many things. But also children teach parents, you know, mm-hmm. children remind parents oftentimes of, of what's possible um, when we're kind of pulled into being more practical and being more restrictive with how we think about what's possible for us. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear how it felt, you know, once the publisher picked your book up, you know, after you went through that period where you're like, maybe I should have been more practical. Maybe I should have chosen the more logical route when that publisher came back and said we want to republish your book um how did that feel to know that just all of all of your effort all of your work um is not only published by you but seen as being enough by this gatekeeper by this bigger institution it was like a full circle moment and it was like you know the saying, if you build it, build it first, it will come. It was like I was seeing that. Like maybe the goal shouldn't be external validation. Maybe the goal should be just showing up. Mm. Just show up as you are. Just put it out there. Just let yourself be seen. A lot of folks don't want to be seen. I did not want to be seen with that book. The minute I opened that book, I was like, mm. <laughs> I was like, maybe I should put that down. Uh-huh. Like, because being perceived is terrifying, but being perceived is what will lead us to our blessings. Mm. Being perceived is what will lead us to opportunity that is greater than our imagination. And I'm so glad I allowed myself to be comfortable with perception. And I'm still like, kind of just like to my publisher, are you sure? Like, that book is really coming out to my swipe it? Like, is that really a thing? And knowing that people are looking forward to it mm. and people telling me that, oh my gosh, I really love this book. I have all my family has it. I bought it for my friend. I, like my therapist got my book. Like they gave my therapist, someone did. And I was like, the impact of believing in yourself first is so transformative. It, it's really, that too is like also Ashay. It's the power, the power. And that's what Ashay means, the power, the ability to make things happen. 
So when we're believing in ourselves, it's almost as if it triggers a domino effect of opportunity, a portal to open up, you know? Being perceived is what will lead us to our blessings. That's, that's a bar right there. That's mm. it. And, um, you know, I'm so, so happy that you found it within yourself to push through the, peri- the periods of doubt, the, the seasons when, you know, your folks were questioning you. You might have been questioning yourself, too. And um, I'm curious, now that you have, you've made it to an extent, you know, you've gotten the bigger publisher, you've gotten the validation. What do you say to somebody who is putting themselves out there, but has not seen the return, has not seen um, the payoff, all the work that they've put in? Mm. What do you tell them? You know how big an oak tree is? Mm. And you know how small the seed is? how small that acorn is mm-hmm. and you know how long it takes for that acorn to become that big oak tree you better take your time you better hold out out you know because you don't want to lose out on something that could be generationally wealthy mm. just because you're scared just because you're unsure everything happens the way that it should in ifa in the odu ejiogbe there's this thing about emi which is the breath our life force our spirit and in Ejiogbe, it teaches us, as long as you have breath and me, as long as you have your spirits, everything can be well. So maybe you're not seeing it today, but as long as you are alive, you may see it tomorrow. Mm. You may see it next week. You may see it next month. But be consistent with it. Mm. Don't push it away and believe in yourself and all will be well. I really believe in that. Mm. I love that. You know, Hime, um, I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate you too. <laughs> I feel like I've, I've learned so much just talking with you and hearing you talk about how you navigate the world, how you navigate life. Um, and so thank you for that. One thing I'm always curious about is the goal of After You Fail is to help people who don't think they've made it, who are beating themselves up for mistakes they've made. We want to help those people to understand themselves more and to give themselves grace, no matter what may have happened. Because, you know, as long as you don't quit, you haven't failed. You know, you have not lost sight of your purpose. And um, I'm curious to hear, you know, when you do fail, when you realize that you've made a mistake, what's the first thing you say to yourself? You know, when you hit that low point, when you're like, oh, that wasn't the world, that, that was me. You know, how do you, how do you bounce back? How do you recover in that moment? So there's like a a phrase or like a cycle that I go through. I first say, I'm sorry. And I say, I forgive you. Then I say, thank you. And I say, I love you. And that hits all of the things for me. It hits the apology for myself for not owning up and not having the accountability to own up to what I need to do. It hits the love, the adoration that I need to have for myself. It hits the acceptance for what it is, and it hits the gratitude for what's to come, you know? And I think those phrases, affirming ourselves, can really change our perspective and moving on from failure. I'm sorry. I forgive you. I thank you, and I love you. I love that. How long does it take for you to get from I'm sorry to I love you? A bit. (laughs) A bit. But then it gets easier. Mm -hmm. You know, like affirmations, they can sound a little bit corny. And I thought they were corny. Like, why am I saying this to myself? But Mm -hmm. it works. Yeah. 
It really do because your yourself needs to hear it. Mm-hmm. You deserve to hear the good things. Yeah, and it it gets easier with time, with mm-hmm. repetition, with consistency, and so it's almost like you know you you have the practice in mind. It does take some time, but eventually you kind of you build that muscle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely. He may thank you so much for all your perspective, for your wisdom, for your gems. I'm just. I'm happy we had this conversation. Thank I feel you. like I learned so much. Ancestors said, thank you so much. For Run it up. Get it. Look, look, get it. Get it. Get it. And thank you for seeing this through and putting it out into the world. You know, I think it's, I, I'm an author too. And I know how easy it is to not finish the book, mm-hmm. to not publish the book, to not promote the book. I'm sure there are folks who will hear this who are somewhere along that path who don't feel like seeing it through. Um, And so thank you for seeing it through. And, you know, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this and you are questioning if you are going to finish this, like, finish the thing, please. Finish it. Where's the camera? Finish it. Finish it. Finish it. Finish it. Finish it. (laughs) Today's affirmation is for you. I hope it reminds you that you don't have to beat yourself up when you make mistakes. And I hope that it helps you to be the soft landing space that you need and deserve when you stumble and fall. The affirmation is as follows. I'm committed to being kind to myself, even when I can't show up as the best version of myself. Even on my worst days, I am deserving of love. I'll say it one more time. I am committed to being kind to myself, even when I can't show up as the best version of myself. Even on my worst days, I am deserving of love. We got to remember that affirmations aren't magical spells, they're tools. And like any hammer or screwdriver or wrench, they only fulfill their desired purpose when they're handled with intention and precision. And so I hope you receive this affirmation with intention today. I hope that it reminds you that being cruel or unkind to yourself won't fix anything, that you can hold yourself accountable and be kind to yourself at the same time. I hope that on your worst days, you can fall back on this understanding and give yourself the love and grace that you deserve. Peace.